I was working on, on this text this week and thinking about it, and a radical idea struck my mind. Maybe too radical. I don't want to shock you, so I just want to warn you in advance about my radical idea. But I'm going to wait a few minutes to tell you, so just hang on for a second, okay? It's going to come up at the right time here. But first, let me catch you up on where we are in John's Gospel. So, so far, we're eight verses in. <laughs> so you will recall, John began um, his great work by introducing us to someone special, very special. John calls him the Logos in verse 1. Or you translate it into English, it's the Word, right? So right away we learn that the Logos, the Word, is God and is with God. So that's in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is God, but he has a relationship with God as well. And that's where, that's where you get this definite sense in Scripture that within God, within the unity of God, there are different persons. And we know it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's just bringing up this concept here that within God, there's more than one person. There are three, but he mentions the two so far. We also learn that all of creation was made, all of creation was made by the Logos, the Word. He created everything. So verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, Nothing has come into being that has come into being. So, very clear statement there. Then we also learn that the Logos, in, in verse 4, he's the source of life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So as the creator, of course, he gives men physical life, but also spiritual life. And spiritual life is being in a living relationship with the creator, with God himself. So he gives that kind of life. And here, spiritual life is also associated with light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, right? That's what he says. So men had light, but we've lost the light. We've lost the light because we've walked away from God. When you reject God as your Lord, the light has gone out for you. So you're groping about in darkness, seeking Mankind seeks purpose and meaning and all kinds of things in all kinds of ways. Some very crass and crude ways, other very philosophical and high-minded ways, but all different forms of darkness, according to Scripture. They grope about in darkness. But the Logos, the Word, is the light of men. In Him are all the answers to all of our questions. He actually is the answer to our questions. And as we shall see, only through Him can spiritual life be obtained by those that lost it? So he's the source of life, and as the light, he illuminates. He illuminates reality. He brings truth. It makes sense that the one who made everything would also have sort of the inside scoop on everything, right? If he made everything, he is the source of truth. He knows how everything is. And we're so tiny, we don't know how everything is. We don't know how everything's purpose for everything, and all the great realities of eternity and time and space. and all. We don't know all that stuff. We can't even hardly manage our own lives. But he knows everything and he knows the purpose for everything and he's in control of everything. So, he would, he would have us know the answer to the life's big questions and he himself is the answer to the big questions. So we need light and we need life. Well, think about it. We need life and we need light for 
two very distinct reasons, and they're related to each other. We need life because we're dying, and we need light because we're in darkness. And he's, he is the answer to both of those issues. Nobody seems to know who and what human beings are exactly. Nobody seems to know. There are so many philosophies and so many religions born out of fear or just sheer speculation about why the world works the way it does. Humans have lots of different ways of seeing reality and understanding human existence. Lots of opinions. Many paths to choose from. But they're very conflicting paths. None of them match each other. There's all kinds of different ways, different worldviews. And we are, as a race of beings, well, I think the expression in the dark really fits uh, where humanity is. We're in the dark about what is really true. And opinions are everywhere. And I was thinking about the two extreme opinions. You've got our culture is kind of built on materialism now. So materialism is the idea that the physical world that you can measure with, you know, like science, that's the only reality there is. There's no spiritual realm. All of our elites build their the structures of our society on that idea, materialism. Now, they might personally think there's more, but that's the, that's the bottom line thing for everything we decide today. The material world is all that really is. And even all of your emotional, psychological, spiritual needs are actually just biology, playing with your mind. So that, and the solution is always something biological or physical, right, to everything. So that's how the world thinks here. Now, if you went to India, it would be almost the opposite. There, they say the world, the physical world, is Maya. Now, Maya was an elephant in a TV show I watched as a child, but that's <laughs> not what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, Maya in Eastern philosophy is that the world is basically an illusion. And there's different ways they talk about that in different sects and different groups and stuff like that. But basically, this world is an illusion because in reality, all is one. It's a great oneness to everything. And we can't see that because of all these distinctions we've made and that we live in in this material world. So the illusion is mine. Well, that's exactly the opposite of materialism. They're both forms of darkness, though. Because God made a real world, but he made much more than this physical world. You are a spiritual being as well, and there are spiritual beings. So materialism, everything is material, and the idea of Maya are polar opposites. And in between those, there's all kinds of other versions of what reality is, right? All kinds of things. Many other ways of understanding the world. Big question, who's right? All these, all these ideas are out there. Who is right? Can anybody shed light on this? Big question. Yes. The one that made us. The one that made everything. The one that made a real, very physical world can tell us everything we need to know. He knows and he came, he came here to tell us about it because we walked away from him. So verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend or that could be translated overtake it. So we talked about that when we were in verse 4. Verse 5 says there's darkness so there's a need for light, and because the light is the creator God, darkness cannot overtake it. So last week, we looked at the first witness to the light, which was John the Baptist, verses 6 through 8. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light. 
so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So John bore witness with the purpose that people would believe in this person that John calls the light, the one who was with God and the one who was God himself. Now, so those are our first eight verses. So far, it's a little bit mysterious who the light shining in the darkness is. I mean, we all know because we've been in the Bible, but if you just read John's gospel, it was your first introduction to Christianity, you would still kind of like, okay, and like, who is that, right? So um, it's a little bit mysterious and it's meant to be that way. He's leading you to a place. So what does John mean? How does the light shine? Well, now in verse 9 and 10, things start becoming more and more clear and John is taking us to this wonderful reality and he's doing it very carefully. God has done an amazing thing. That's what he wants you to say. So verse 9 says, there was the true light. So John bore witness to the light. Now he's saying there was the true light who coming into the world enlightens every man. Then verse 10 says, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Now, so wait a second here. Who was in the world? Well, the one that made everything. Who's the one that made everything? The, the Logos, the word back in verse 1 and verse 2, right? The word who was with God in the beginning and who was God. He was, he was in the world. He actually came into the world. So don't miss this. This is the main idea here. The one that made the world was in the world. The one who existed prior to the world and is independent of the world. He made the world. And John says he came into the world. The world owes its very existence to him. And he has been here. Okay. Now, are you ready for my radical idea? This is radical. Here's my idea. If that's true, that the creator of all things came into the world, if that's true, that the one who made everything was here, and if God is light and he came into our dark world, then, here's my radical idea, we should look to him for the answers to our questions. Pretty wild. <laughs> I know, I know, it's hard. <laughs> I'm trying to control it. <laughs> okay, it gets wilder. More, more than that, that we should get our answers from him, we should actually build our lives around the things that he says, the God who came, God who came into the world. That's what we should do. We should make him and his words our center Now, that's really not radical, but it is radical to people that are in darkness. It's just crazy to them. It's just amazing that that would even be the, that anybody would even think that way. But the true light came to enlighten every man, he says. So I know it sounds bonkers to let oneself be enlightened by God when he came into this world, but there it is right there in the Bible. To me, actually, it seems incredibly rational that we would do that if, if it's true, right? So, of course, we could ignore him. I mean, for now... But what happens if we ignore him who came into the world? The maker of the world came into the world and we're going to ignore him? Well, that means we're in darkness. And if we ignore him, it means we remain in darkness, right? 
to remain in ignorance, and I would use the words willful blindness. Willful blindness. In verse 10 it says, the world did not know him. How could people in darkness not know the true light when he appears? How could that even happen? Doesn't he shine brightly in the darkness? I mean, who's shone brighter in the history of the world than Jesus of Nazareth? Even unbelievers, even atheists think he was the greatest moral teacher of the world. And the best man that ever lived. He shines brightly. So how could you miss that? How could you not know him? How could you... Choose darkness when the light of the world came into the world. Willful blindness. That's the only way. You know, you can't see if you close your eyes. I don't see anything. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You keep your eyes closed, you're not going to see anything. That's willful blindness. In many ways, the story of John's gospel is, it, the, the whole gospel is a story of blindness. Willful blindness. That's really how it can, as it works through that's one of the main themes in the story. Not seeing because you don't want to. Because you don't like what you see. And in John chapter 3 verse 19, we're not there yet. We'll get there some year. <laughs> but it says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That's the judgment of God on the human condition. Human beings, after thousands of years, still prefer to worship idols, whatever that idol might be. It might even be yourself. And to make your own rules, which is totally where our culture is today. You make your own rules. And yes, as we go forward into the main body of John's gospel, John's going to explain all of this. But in terms of just this prologue, verses 1 through 18 here, John doesn't stop with a general statement. It's, it's true what he says in verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. But the light, who we know is the Lord Jesus, wasn't just sort of around in the world, right? The light came into the world. Just kind of around, you know, showed up here, showed up there. That's not the story we're, we're going to see here. He was in a very specific place and he came to a very specific people. A certain point in time, certain place in time. And the people were not only expecting him, they were expecting the Messiah. But John the Baptist, verses 6 through 8 here, prepared the way for Jesus to come to that particular people in that particular time, that generation. John prepared the way for him. And that's what verse 11 is all about. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He came to his own, but he found no reception there. That's really the story of John's gospel, Jesus among his own. That's the story that's going to be told in the gospel. And the many opportunities his people had to see the light shining very brightly, and the many witnesses that God provided, not just John before he came, but all the miracles and all the signs that he did, unmistakable signs that this man was God's chosen son. He's the divine son. These signs, John the apostle, the writer of the gospel, is going to lay out for us. But in spite of all the evidence and all the expectation of the Messiah coming, he was despised, he was hated, and he was murdered by those to whom he offered the kingdom of God. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now that little phrase, there's a little Greek phrase, three little words there, to his own. It's an interesting phrase. I'm going to talk about that for just a second. So the Greek expression commonly 
what those Greek words there, and we won't get into that part, but those three little words typically in the Greek language, we're talking about your own stuff, your, especially your own property or your own land or your own home, your own house. And in fact, John translates it that way in other parts of the gospel. I just want to share two of those for you, with you. John 16, 32, he's at the Last Supper, and Jesus said to the disciples, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own. And most of your Bibles will say each to his own home right there. And to leave me alone. So each to his own home. Then in John 19 verse 27. Jesus is on the cross. And he sees his mother there. And John the writer of this book was standing next to her. John was the only one of the apostles that was at the cross. And the text says when Jesus saw his mother. This is John 19:27, And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother woman behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And then it says, from that hour, that disciple took her into his own. And my Bible says his own household. But neither that one verse talking about they scattered to their own home or John brought her into her, his own household. Neither of those actually have the word house or home in there. That's supplied. See, in my New American Standard Bible, they're in italics. And that's how you know the translator stuck the word in there. But um, the point is, that same expression is actually used here in John chapter 1. So kind of think about that. Christ didn't just come into the world willy-nilly like any old place. When verse 11 says he came to his own, it's his own home in that sense. It's his property. It, he's the king of kings. It's his kingdom, right? So it's especially meaningful, I think, and poignant in a way that those who were his own did not receive him. They were waiting for him. They were expecting him. They were celebrating his arrival. They had so much light ahead of time to be ready for him to come. So much for so long. It's just amazing. John Phillips, who's a preacher and wrote a little commentary on John, he said that out of the whole world, the light of creation and the light of conscience was always present. Everybody had some sense of, of God. But he says Israel had the quote added light of covenants and commandments. Which is so true. The covenant with Abraham is the one. Genesis chapter 12 it drives the whole Bible story until the coming of Jesus. That's what it's all about. And all the commandments, the law of Moses, everything. The sacrifices, the lamb of God, the, the Passover, all of that. Israel had that. And I would add to that the light of specific prophecy. Daniel said the day he would come, and that is the day he rode the donkey into Jerusalem. And there's all kinds of other prophecies about that. In fact, um, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And John, when we get to chapter 12, is going to quote that prophecy. Because that day Jesus rode into Jerusalem, on the day that Daniel said it would be, he presented himself officially as the Messiah of Israel. And he was welcomed that way for that moment. Because the people had known his ministry. 
They hailed him as the son of David. He came to his own. Israel had seen him over a course of several years. His compassion, his wisdom, his integrity. And yeah, the signs, the unmistakable signs, the mark of divinity, the miracles that he did. But in the end, he was abandoned to those who hated him and given over. Why did the people with authority and community in the nation of Israel waiting for the Messiah to come why did they hate Jesus? What would have happened had they been truly ready in their hearts for whatever he had to say to them? Why did they hate him? Well, the reason is he exposed their sin. And instead of have humble hearts and repentant hearts about that, they were in darkness of their own making. They created a whole religion of their own making which did not allow for someone like him. They had so twisted and so mangled the word of God, what was important in the word of God, that they had to have a complete change of heart to receive him, and they did not want that to happen. They were not contrite. They rationalized their sins. John the Baptist told them that's what they were doing before Jesus came, and when Jesus came, he said the same thing. The second thing about them was they were proud, and when pride and sin mixed together, Nothing good can come of that. People will not change. They cannot change when those two things are brought together. So instead of listening to Jesus and humbling themselves, they sought to destroy him. So they maligned him. Every chance they had to do so while he was doing his ministry, they said his miracles were satanic because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. That's violating the Sabbath. He must be evil. Of course, his answer to that was, you know, God does work on the Sabbath. Then they told people he broke the law of Moses when he ignored their traditions. They made up their own rules. He didn't care about those. So they said, he's against the law of Moses. No, he kept the law of Moses. And they said he hung out with sinners because he liked their company. He wasn't, he wasn't sanctified. But that day he rode the donkey into Jerusalem, he was welcomed. So they had to arrest him in the late dark hours. And once arrested, then they could say to the people that welcomed him, see, this guy's not a Messiah. We took him easy. He's in our custody. He's in our power. That's not the Messiah you've been waiting for. He's the, your Messiah is supposed to rule the world. Look what we've done. But the big charge at his trials was, which was actually based on his own words about himself, but the charge was blasphemy, blasphemy. In fact, at the trial, the, the high priest said to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Because they weren't getting very far. So they just flat out asked him. Mark 14, 61. Do you remember how Jesus answered? I am. I am, and you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. Don't say that if you want to live. And that was enough. And Mark tells us how the court reacted. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, Prophesy! And the officers received him with slaps in the face. So they regarded him as a man worthy of a good beating. 
and a crucifixion. That was the final charge against him leading to death, blasphemy. And he had to supply it for them because they couldn't convict him with what the witnesses had said so far. So he told them the truth, I am. He was rejected by all who should have bowed to him. But John's story honestly is not first and foremost about rejection. That is a major theme that's going to run through the whole gospel here, why they rejected him and how that played out. But the story is really about what his death and his resurrection meant for those who didn't reject him, for those who accepted him, who believed, who put their faith in him. You know the first Christian sermon after Jesus' resurrection, Acts chapter 2, brought 3,000 Jewish souls into the kingdom of God. 3,000 and then thousands more followed and, but they were still a very small minority but then thousands more came along and were added then more and then more until they became such a significant number that the leaders of Israel decided to resort to persecution. So they hired this guy named Paul, they, Saul and before his conversion and they sent him out to persecute people and Jesus converted their persecutor. <laughs> And so he became the Apostle Paul, not Saul the violent anymore. So as a nation, Israel rejected Jesus. But many individuals, Jew and Gentile, received him. So now what does the Gospel of John tell us about those who received Jesus? Because many rejected, but some received, and that was enough. That, that, that those that received him to win many thousands of other people all throughout the Roman Empire and beyond the borders of the Roman Empire. So if we receive Jesus instead of reject him, what does that mean? Verse 12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, born of God. Those are some of the most wonderful words in the entire New Testament. If you receive Christ, if you receive Christ, they're your words. They're for you. They're your story. There's really three important verbs right there in verse 12. Receive, believe, and become. And John uses receive and believe as synonyms here. They're the same basic idea. Believe, receive, and become. Receive gives, really gives definition to believe. Believe is not, believe is not just an affirmation of facts. That's why he adds the idea of receiving as well. So it's not just, oh, yeah, I, I get it. I think Jesus is the Messiah that rose from the dead. I, I think that's really true. That's not what believing is. Reception is the idea. You receive him. Believing in his name, it says, that's not a, that doesn't mean, oh, I believe in the name. I believe that was his name. That's not what that means. In the ancient world, when you talk about somebody's name, you're talking about who they are. Like, stop in the name of the law, right? You're saying all the laws behind me when you say something like that. In the name of Jesus, you're talking about all that he is, the king of the world, the creator of everything, the redeemer, the savior, the, our priest, our sacrifice, the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world, all the things that it says about him, that's what you're putting your trust in that. That's what it means to believe. You receive him as that, your Lord, your savior, your king, your God. 
When I receive him, I trust him as all of it. I embrace him as all of it. To receive him means that I don't just believe he's the king, he's my king. I don't just believe that he's God, he's my God. I don't just believe that he's the redeemer of mankind, he's my redeemer. That's what that means. And you know what? When I receive him, I become, I become his child. That's the promise right there. As many as received him, to them he gave the right. So God gives those who receive the right. And that word means the authority. In fact, that literally is what that word means. When Pontius Pilate said, I have the authority to crucify you or to let you go. That's the word he used. It's my authority. God gives you who receive Jesus the authority to call yourself a child of God. That's an incredible gift. It's a great gift. But aren't we all God's children? Really? No. No, we're all God's creatures, but we're not all God's children. We're all made in His image, but we're not all God's children. Not since the fall of man. We forfeited that right to call ourselves God's children. We were rebels. You know, when you try to overthrow the government, you don't say, I'm a loyal citizen. You're an enemy of the government, whatever that might be, whatever your circumstances might be. We'll see in John chapter 8 that Jesus told his enemies, the Pharisees, he said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. They weren't children of God. Well, that's pretty clear. So the truth is, no one is a child of God until they are given this particular gift we're talking about. And no one in the Bible is called a child of God who hasn't become a child of God through believing and receiving Jesus. That's the way it happens. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says human beings are enemies of God until we are reconciled by Him. And once reconciled through Christ, then they become sons. That's why I read Romans 8 earlier in the service today. That's the great reality of salvation. God turns rebels, his enemies, into his children. And he does it by a gift. The gift of his son who pays for our sins and the right to claim that we are children of God. Thus we have the authority to say we're God's children, not because we're so wonderful, but because his gift is so perfect and precious. And that leads us to the very powerful verse 13. Who were born, stop right there. The who is all who believe and receive, right? Jesus and become children of God. These were born, very important word or concept in the gospel, in theology. John chapter 3 is all about the new birth. Jesus is going to explain that to a man who should have known what that was, but didn't. That's the spiritual life or the awakening that theologians call regeneration, the new birth. That's exactly what it is. The new birth is essential because we can't embrace Jesus or follow God without something on the inside changing us because we're full of darkness and pride. So this inner work of God is part of the covenant is part of what God's doing. You know, the Old Testament tells us about this work that's coming, this birth, if you will, connected to the salvation promise because the Old Testament, what do you, you read the Old Testament? I was talking to a young man the other day who, who's been reading the Old Testament. He says, they're just sinning all the time. And I said, yep, that's the message. You got it. 
they're just sinning all the time because man is essentially evil. He's, he needs salvation. He needs something to happen to him. So in Jeremiah, God promises a new covenant because the old covenant is here's the rules. And we all break the rules many times. So we need something else. So there's a promise in Jeremiah 31, 33 of a new covenant. It reads like this. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. When God says I will be their God and they shall be my people, he says that many, many times in the Old Testament. He's talking about a saving relationship with him, a restored relationship with him. Enemies turned into children. That's the idea. To have that relationship, he has to write his law inside of us. Write it on the heart. Why? Because people will not love him and will not follow his law without him doing something. So Ezekiel also, chapter 36 of Ezekiel, verse 26, says something even more explicit than Jeremiah does. Moreover, God speaking, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. A soft heart. I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I give to your forefathers. So you will be my people. And I will be your God. So who's doing this transformation in those verses? It's God. Totally. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, the Lord says. He promises Israel a spiritual heart transplant. I'm going to take out that heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And so it is with us. John 1.13, who were born, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Where does that new birth come from? Who makes it happen? God does. Three times he says where it doesn't come from, right? Born not of blood, doesn't come from physical descent. Jews like to say our salvation is because we're descended from Abraham. He says that's not it. Nor the will of the flesh. Some people say that means the physical union of man and woman. Um, this birth is not physical would be what he's saying. I think it's more like what the way Paul uses the word flesh, which is the natural man, the unregenerate man, man dead in sin who cannot give himself life, I think that's the meaning here, the, the new birth does not come from the will of the flesh. And then he says, nor the will of man. We don't have the will to make it happen. As Martin Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will, that's our problem. There's, our will is in bondage to sin. We don't want to do it. So this birth is not due to man's will at all. You can't will away your nature and will yourself a, a new birth without God. It's a gift from a merciful God. And what a gift it is. Not just pardon. Not just we're allowed to live at all since we deserve the wages of sin is death. I'll let you live. It's not that. Not just letting us serve him. It's making us children. Children of God. Adopted. That's the New Testament word adopted. Rebels becoming loyalists to the king of kings. Rebels against God becoming dear children 
who love him and want to serve him and follow him. God's enemies becoming sons and daughters. That is a miracle of God's love. So, you're all sitting here. Ask yourself, have you received Jesus? Have you received Jesus? Received him as your king, your savior, your redeemer? If you haven't done that, I just implore you, get on your knees before God and ask for a new heart and put your trust in what he's promised. And he will save you. He will do it. Receive him and you will become something very, very special, a child of God. Okay, we've come up to verse 14. John is ready to drop the bombshell, the centerpiece of all Christian belief, the heart of our faith, the scandal of God's greatest miracle of all times. He's hinted at it, but now it's right in front of us, and we'll do that in two weeks. <laughs> we've got a guest speaker next week. One of the men that's coming to do our leadership training this week said, can I preach in your church? And I said, you bet you can. Because <laughs> he's an awesome guy. So uh, we're going to do that next, next Sunday and then in two weeks, verse 14. <laughs> Let's pray. God, how good you are to the undeserving. We would never grasp it at all unless by your grace and power you broke the bondage of our wills, our corrupt will, and shed your light in our hearts. You illuminate us with your glory so we will see and believe. Grant that illumination to all who are among us who need it today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.